0: Hello and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife and I'm joined weekly by my co-host B from Core and Flora Store and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion, episode number 21. B is just caught up in a meeting and she sent me a text message and said, just go ahead and get started without me. So we are a rebellion of one for the moment, but I feel as though at some point in this recording, she's just gonna pop up and arrive into this episode. So stay tuned. But today we're talking about suturing versus not suturing perineal tears. So if we start by talking about perineal tears. What are they? So basically, as your baby is emerging, there's a body of tissue between your vaginal opening and there's the space in between your anus and your vaginal opening is considered your perineal area, your perineal space. And actually, if you look at this space structurally, the skin and the tissues are quite different to the rest of your body. They seem quite spongy very well perfused with blood, and there's a lot of immune and lymphatic activity around that area. It's almost as if that area of our body is designed to tear and repair, which makes a whole lot of sense because historically we didn't have the tools or knowledge or capacity to be suturing perineum. So the suturing of perineal tears is only a very new historical process with the invention of needles and sutures and medical management of childbirth. And so, of course, historically, there would have also been a number of women who healed poorly and who had long-term issues from poor perineal healing after childbirth. However, have we gone too far the other way with suturing absolutely every single tear that should occur during childbirth? There will be a separate episode on preventing perineal tears, but that's going to be a hell of a lot longer because that's going to be full of a lot more information. And so if you're a woman listening to this, you may or may not be aware that if you arrive in hospital, have your baby there and you have anything greater than a first degree tear, you will most likely be recommended to have that repaired with stitches. So I'll start by going through the grades of perineal trauma or tears after childbirth. So first degree involves skin. Second degree, slightly larger, involves skin and some of the muscle layer. Third degree tear starts to encroach upon the anal sphincter and anal muscles and structure. And fourth degree tear completely interrupts the anal sphincter. That's a very basic rundown of perineal trauma. I'm probably going to get emails from people going, what about 3A? What about 3B? What about all the subclassifications? For the purpose of this, you need to know that first and second degree tears are usually the realm of midwifery. Third and fourth degree tears need a greater level of assessment and repair that is out of the scope of midwives, and that's often referred to obstetricians to repair. And if you're on the mailing list, all of the research papers I'm going to be speaking about today are going to be in the big master folders where all of the evidence papers that from previous episodes have been stored. So anyone on the mailing list gets access to all the research that I'm going to be talking about today. So let's start with first degree tears. In hospital or if you've given birth at home, there's a general consensus and understanding that first degree tears don't need to be repaired. And so if you have a look at the research on that, they have basically found That to be true is that if we don't repair a first degree tear, then recovery will occur in most situations. And so, there's not many practitioners will will routinely recommend stitching first degree tears. There's also not many practitioners that you'll find, including myself, that will recommend not stitching third and fourth degree tears. First degree tears usually don't need stitching, third and fourth degree tears. I would always recommend expert repair. Where the contention is, is in second degree tears. In hospital, if they see that you have a second degree tear, they'll almost always recommend that that needs suturing. I don't believe that to be the case. And actually the research on it seems to be pretty conclusive also. So I'll run you through what I do. At home as a home birth midwife, what happens if after examining the woman's vagina, perineum and vulva after childbirth, if we've identified a second degree tear. Once you have your baby and your placenta's been born, that you'll be helped into a comfortable position so that your clinician or your care provider can inspect your vulva, your labia, clitoris, your vaginal wall, so the inside of your vagina, your perineum and the anal structures. And this assessment takes a minute or two. However, women do find it to be a disruptive part of their bonding journey with their baby. So this doesn't necessarily need to be hurried. However, the sooner you do the repair, it can be better. So some clinicians like to make sure that the repair that's done is done quickly. And so this process can often be hurried. Once your placenta is out Your clinician may want to do it sooner, but if you feel like you need some time, that's okay too. Again, as we spoke about in the vaginal examination episode, it's important that women are made comfortable because they're going to be opening their legs and you're going to be touching and inspecting their vulva and vagina where they just pushed a baby out. So very sensitive situation. So the words I'm just going to see if you've had a tear are not sufficient to describe what will happen when the midwife is inspecting your vulva? So here's how I explain it to women is that sometimes after having a baby, you can have tears or grazes or some damage from that baby coming through. So we're going to get into a comfortable position to check that. Midwives will use sterile gloves and a little pad, gauze pad. Sometimes they'll moisten it but not always. And then the process of checking for perineal trauma is that you would check start at the top around the clitoris and then part the labia, check for internal grazes on both sides of your labia and then gradually move down, moving side to side to check for any grazes, labial tears or any swelling or bruising. And it's important to explain to women what you're going to do, how long it's going to take and where you're going to start. If there's any point at which you feel this is too uncomfortable, let me know and I'll take my hands off. And that's the important part is even if you've been given consent to check someone's vulva post-birth, it's important that the woman always feels like they can stop that procedure at any time. So I always remind women, if this feels too much, you let me know and I'll take my hands off. I would absolutely not ever continue. Even if I had three seconds of the inspection left, Never continue to check someone's perineum if they've told you it's time to take your hands off. And if we identify a second degree tear, this is the time for me at home for women. I talk to them about how now we need to make a decision about what they would like to do. Would they like stitches or not? And so I have a little criteria by which you can assess if a woman needs to have perineal stitches or if that one could be left to heal on its own. So let's talk about firstly, that's The tears that the second degree tears that I would consider suitable to be uh, left to heal on their own without stitches. So, firstly, if a woman's lying down, she's prepared to have her perineum checked, her vulva checked after birth. So, she's opened her legs and I immediately looked without touching to see what I can see. Is there swelling? Is there bruising? Is there bleeding? is anything gaping? Is there any obvious damage that's visible from the outside without first putting my hands on? So that tells me a lot about what this woman's options might be for repair. So then if I go ahead and do check and I find a second degree tear, but then my when my fingers and my hands come away, the woman's vulva moves back into a position that's symmetrical and that the tear is closed even when her legs are open and there's no gaping wounds or active bleeding from that wound, that would be considered to me a tear that could repair on its own. Because after all, the only reason we put stitches in a perineum post-birth is so that the edges of the woman's vulva or vaginal space or perineum actually oppose each other. They're right next to each other and lying flat against each other. So the body knows where to heal. What am I putting back together? And it can find the other side of the woman's anatomy. If that's already occurred, my question is, why would we then put stitches in a wound that already fits together that isn't bleeding even when the woman's legs are wide open. So my argument would be that sutures are unnecessary in that circumstance. Not to mention you need to inject local anesthetic into that space, could be two or four needles into the woman's vulva and perineal space in the golden hour, in the time after giving birth when really she should be concentrating on her baby and initiating first feeds and allowing those bonding hormones to take over. If you listen to our episode with Dr. Sarah Buckley on the labor hormones, it would be almost scandalous to encroach on that space with a procedure such as suturing a woman's perineum if she doesn't absolutely need it. And so I do consider suturing to be intrusive on that really important space. And so the assessment of whether or not women actually need sutures I think has long-term reach for the woman and baby's bonding journey so in the interest of protecting the woman's postpartum period and not extending unnecessary pain or discomfort consider whether or not that perineum truly does need to be sutured
1: I'm here I'm popping in I finished my meeting don't keep recording without me I missed you too much I don't like it when you do solo podcasts I feel I got FOMO Oh, I don't like it either. I was just talking to myself there and it was weird. Well, now now that we know this is meant to be, I mean, we knew this was meant to be, but now we know even more. So what are we talking about? Suturing versus not suturing? It's a really good question.
0: Suturing versus not suturing. I've already talked to people about, here, I'll give you a wrap-up. I'll catch you up. Uh, I've already spoken to people about the different degrees, first, second, third, and fourth degree test and and obviously there's a little bit of a breakup between the three A's and B's and C's but I didn't go into detail then I spoke about the process by which we would inspect someone's vulva and perineum post-birth but also that it's a super sensitive time after you've given birth and we actually would like to protect the hormonal environment that governs that initial postpartum journey so you know, There's a hormonal <laughs> environment that needs protection. Mel, oh, where have you been? Oh, of course, <laughs> you weren't it's in. back the episode, you've got to go back. It's and not.
1: It's not. Where have I been? I was being sarcastic, but you, because because you really wouldn't think that there was one
0: in most of the practices we do in that those minutes and early hours postpartum. Totally, and I did mention as well that for women who are giving birth in a hospital service. After your placenta's out, there's quite an excited situation where the practitioner wants to tick off the box of checking your perineum and seeing if you've had any tears because they'd like to get it repaired ASAP. And also get you done and get the bed cleaned for
1: the next person. And I think is that when you're birthing in a system, you're a bed bed space issue. And so much of what happens around timeframes is that care is very much centered, not on you, but on the next person that needs the bed. And then when you become the person that has the bed, it's not on you, it's on the next person that needs the bed. And that is why we can't hold space for those postpartum hormones as best as we'd like to, because a lot of your care providers do want to be able to practice like this, but it's not a function of the system. It doesn't, it doesn't help the system work well.
0: Mm, yeah. So then next, oh, thanks, B. Sorry. That was I, I dismissed that little No, you let me talk. That's yeah, all that was is. needed time. And you said, yeah, I said what I needed to say. Good. I'm glad. And so then I spoke about when before you were here, that usually first degree tears aren't repaired in hospital and second degree tears are usually routinely repaired. But that's where our point of discussion is today, probably centered on second degree tears because third and fourth degree tears should always be repaired. And I think that I want to
1: add in here that whilst you've said they're not routinely repaired, I have seen grazers have sutures put in them. And I've seen first many first degree tears sutured. And then the discussion, which you probably haven't gone there yet, around people having sutures for appearance reasons. But um, yeah, I've, I've seen way too many times and heard way too many times where grazers and first degree tears have been sutured and caused a lot of pain. And then I've heard the opposite, where people have wished that they'd had sutures and hadn't. And that typically comes from private midwifery and from caseload midwifery where we may not suture as much. Um, And people have gone, oh, actually, I wish I had. And then I've had the opposite where people have been like, I wish I hadn't. It's a really tricky one, right? In terms of evidence, we talk about the only need to suture is when there, there's two reasons we suture. One is that if the tear is bleeding, and so we suture the tear to stop bleeding. The other reason we suture is to decrease what we call dead space. So if your tear is quite significant, and this is where we're talking second degree tears and beyond, then you have quite a space that is now created that wasn't there before. So would you agree, Mel, that they're the two reasons? Right? We say if this space is bleeding, and we think mm, it really needs to be sutured here to stop bleeding, or to decrease dead space, to decrease your risk of infection. They're the two reasons I really see why midwives promote suturing.
0: Yes. And that's what that is something that we that I had discussed with myself earlier in the episode was that, yes, if it's not bleeding and also uh, if the edges of the tear are well opposed to each other, because part of the idea of suturing is that you're bringing the two sides together so your body knows what to put back together when it's healing. And so if they're not well opposed and there's gaping or asymmetry in, when you observe it from the outside, the initial period or the initial process of checking someone's vulva and perineum would be to actually just visually see what's going on from the outside. Is there swelling? Is there any of the wound gaping open? And in which case that could, because really the idea of suturing is that you bring all the structures together as well. So because that's with a second degree tear, there's trauma to the muscle, the perineal muscles. So we want to bring those back together. So there's good function at the end. And you bring up a good point about appearance when we're doing or considering how to repair or if to repair someone's perineum as midwives we're usually always thinking about how can we make it so that after the birth this area is going to function as it usually did rather than how can we make sure that this woman's vulva looks as it used to because Our vulvas, after we have babies, will always be postpartum vulvas. They will always be postpartum vaginas. So I guess there's an extra element of how do we feel about changes to our vulva as a result of perineal damage versus how we feel about how well our body's going to function afterwards.
1: This is a whole philosophy of core and floor. This is my whole, it's my underlying philosophy within everything that I do because culturally we value appearance over function in everything so whenever I'm talking about healing from diastasis recti to prolapse it's you know people will say oh I can still see my prolapse and my first question is well what symptoms do you have well none we'll put the mirror down but we don't we really evaluate appearance and I'm not here to tell you what's right or wrong but I'd really like cultural shift in this and you know a lot of us I think with vulvas too, we have this perception of what everyone else's vulva looks like and we think that everyone's vulva is perfect and that ours isn't. Vulvas all look differently. So Mel's face and my face doesn't look the same. Mel's vulva and my vulva don't look the same. Just like my face is different and my arms are different. The other thing I want to say here is that our body is constantly changed. So your body doesn't look like it did when it was a baby. It didn't look like it did when it was a teenager or in the 20s and it's not currently looking now what it's going to look like when it's 60 70 or 80 so appearance is something we've been marketed to really value and the amount of people that have plastic surgery on their vulvas is increasing Mm -hmm. um and it's huge so mel and i aren't here to say get sutured or don't it's what's important to you and what's going to matter to you and if appearance is then you may be someone that will want to have more suturing and then you may experience that as being epic and you may be really happy with it or you may experience that as actually that created more scar tissue that created more pain with sex that created more pain with healing I thought that that was what I wanted but it didn't actually feel good in my postpartum and if I have a next time that won't be something I do sometimes we've got to live the experience to to really understand what we may have wanted or not wanted but I mean midwifery typically advocates for less suturing because we're trying to allow the space to come back together it's a highly visceral space it's very capable of healing it's tricky I mean what does the evidence
0: I haven't really ever looked at the evidence on this to be oh, honest well I have because I've spent 14 years as a home birth midwife and also we don't really have the opportunity to maintain a high level of suturing skill because we so infrequently get to do it. Because firstly, perineal tears are less likely at home. And secondly, the majority of my clients have opted for no suturing when they do have a tear. And so uh, can I also add to your discussion is, you know, people like, yeah, put it back together because I want it to look as it was midwives and doctors aren't plastic surgeons so when we're putting it together we're not really thinking about how can I make this look like it used to or how can I make it look better than it used to we're not really focused on the detail we're focused on the macro level of let's make sure this goes back together so it works like it used to if you're hoping for some kind of finesse or adjustment to what you used to have, it's not going to occur during a perineal repair with a midwife or doctor necessarily. So if you think it's going to look the same even after repair, just be prepared that it may absolutely not. It may. Your vagina and vulva may look exactly as it looked but, yeah, can I just say I have a vulva that hasn't changed
1: and people will probably want to stab me in the eye for this, but I was intact both times and I put it down <laughs> to all the corn public pelvic floor stuff I did and how I birthed but and where I birthed and who I birthed with and nutrition and there's a lot to it, right, and people are going to be listening to this going, well, I had a fourth-degree tear and I did all the right things and if that was you, I'm sorry because there is so much emotion around tearing, so much, and there's so much story and we often move really into shaming but i don't know what it feels like to have sutures i've never had them i only know from people's experiences that i've heard so this is i feel like i i can't i can't give to this conversation from a personal experience that I can give to this conversation from what people have, from people I've cared for and now people that I care for postpartum as well. And so sometimes our vulvas do look the same, like mine sagging a bit because our lips do start to sag, just like balls start to sag, lips start to sag. And if you don't know that yet, you will know it. I didn't um,
0: know that. I didn't know you that I was going to get saggy lips. Okay. You're going to get saggy
1: lips. They start to drop. And and people often talk about that because vulvas in pregnancy are quite engorged. And so postpartum, they do look a bit droopier. Some people have no reference point, So some people actually don't know what their vulva looked like before. Um, and some of you will be pregnant now going, actually, I want to have a look. And if you are looking in pregnancy, they do look very different to pre-pregnancy. My, my lips are going to sag. But they do. I mean, mine, Um, yeah, they start... Start to they start to like yeah
0: they start to sag just
1: they lose that elasticity and that what is it like the same with our face and everything how everything collagen, starts to drop Coll- it is collagen I wanted to say collagen but then I was like is it it's, yeah it is yeah. I mean people have yeah they have Botox and bleaching and I just oh. want to say too yeah anus is meant to be brown
0: yes don't bleach your anus gosh oh if you want to you can If you want to you can but then <laughs> you know what I think there's a lot of things that hold women back from reaching their full potential and I think one of them is spending excess money and time bleaching uranus anus or an excessive amount of time on hair removal and just trying to maintain this unattainable goal of everything yeah. being smooth and pink and like just gorgeous and if so I
1: yeah I guess my advice here is if you're really considering whether you should bleach your anus or not or any kind of anything that is related to appearance tune in to 80 year old you and ask 80 year old you what she would think and what she would say to you because i reckon she'd say hey try and find the joy that is surrounding you already and and tap into that and stop wasting your money um because you are worth
0: it you are worthy you are beautiful and epic so i mean i just think anytime you're doing something to your body that you know isn't about nourishment think about what could i be doing with my time that's going to be way more productive and propel me into greatness or look after others or whatever you know the only reason i have hairy legs is because i've got better things to do with my time mate i have got better things to do than cater to other people's needs visual needs when they look at my body if if you're upset by seeing my hairy legs and underarm hair then you aren't busy enough either you're not doing the most amazing stuff you could be doing with your oh. life if that's what oh, you've that's just ready. been conditioned
1: to think that that's wrong like so I was on Body body the other day and I was like I wonder if they show pubic hair on here and they did there was epic pictures of models with pubic hair hanging out the side of their Body bodies and I was like yes and so yesterday I went to a park with my son and my pubic hair was hanging out and the lady that ran the park I saw her looking and I was yeah. like you can enjoy that I grew those hairs. I didn't grow them for you, but I put my body put a lot of effort into growing Absolutely. the hairs. It's only confronting if we don't see it. You really, I mean, I'm I know we're getting, you know, we're diving we're into this out. here. We're well, we're not off track because it's important to think about do you value appearance and do you want to? Because a lot of this this really stems into, I mean, the repair of your vulva is that first kind of entry point into the changes that your body goes through in postpartum and there is a lot of healing to be done and so whether you get sutured or not and it is your choice always i mean we highly recommend i highly recommend third and fourth degree sutures for 100 there is nothing in me that doubts that at all but it's got to be your choice and it's got to feel right for you and there are going to be very different belief systems and and values that affect your decision Like, really, this is what underpins it all. So I think it's a really healthy conversation to have. And then postpartum, your recovery depends on you honoring and loving your body and respecting her. Because if you talk to her like rubbish, think of her as a colleague. If I constantly turned up here and was like, Mel, you're useless, you can't perform well, you're no good, I don't like you, I'm just going to disassociate and disconnect, and then I'm like, oh, by the way, can you do this really big project for me for free? You're going to be like, no. That's our postpartum body, the first steps. I always say healing requires connection and connection requires compassion. Mm you have
0: got to have that connection and compassion to heal. So I looked at the research on first-degree tears because you were talking about how sometimes you've seen first-degree tears be repaired. So the research on that is pretty conclusive, is that for women who had suturing for first-degree tears, they experienced higher levels of discomfort. Postnatally, um, and that actually, regardless of whether you stitch or not, the healing and outcomes are the same. There was also some pretty good research on the use of glues for repair of first degree tears, which was also pretty promising. But basically, the evidence was suggesting that suturing for first degree tears wasn't necessary, necessarily necessary uh, from a medical perspective. But obviously, women would have preferences and. I'm not going to go through all the research on that, but those papers will be in the folders if you're on the mailing list. There's a few of those. And then the research on second degree tears was pretty good also. Essentially, the long-term outcomes were identical. So in terms of function and healing, rates of infection and all that kind of stuff, whether you suture a second degree tear or not, your body will heal the same and feel the same in the long term, obviously going by that criteria though. So if you've got a second degree tear that's obviously gaping or has a lot of space in it or isn't opposed to the other side or there's a lot of bleeding, that could be a good medical reason to suture that tear. However, I do believe that one would also heal because if you think about perineal tear and I'm doing, I'm doing hand actions here the, the palms of my heels are together. If you imagine this as an open wound. The palms of your hands are together. My palms of my head, the bottom of the kind of the wrist, my wrists are together. And if you imagine the perineum like a zipper, so it zips shut from the bottom. So when you are healing, the the healing is going to happen from the bottom and go up all the way to the top and in a way kind of zip itself shut most of the time. Provided, and I'll talk about adequate healing environments for women who haven't been sutured. But I have seen open, gaping type wounds heal beautifully as well. So, what we found in the research, and again, the papers will be up there, is that in the short term, women who have their perineum sutured for second degree tears report faster healing, but higher levels of pain in the early period. And so Although the suturing produces faster healing in the early stages, uh, in the long term, the two approaches are considered equivalent and we have to consider whether or not the initial faster healing should be balanced against the need for women to have higher levels of pain relief and higher levels of discomfort in the early part when they have stitches. So when they follow up women at six weeks, there's no difference in um, unhealed perineums, infection rates, urinary incontinence, discomfort. So whether you choose to have a second degree tear stitched or not, the benefit is that they say, women report that a stitched second degree tear healed faster, but they needed more pain relief. And women who didn't have their tear sutured were more comfortable in the early period but felt that their tear took a little bit longer to heal. Uh, We just want to highlight here too that
1: actually I haven't asked for your opinion on this, but my opinion would be that an episiotomy gets sutured.
0: Oh, yes. 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 But, you know, when, and this is something that I was talking about this week, if, if a woman has her perineum sutured or episiotomy sutured, and for some reason, the wound breaks down, all the stitches come away, and that wound is left unstitched after the woman intended for it to be stitched. The usual management is actually to leave those. We can't restitch them and we let them heal on their own. And that's considered- I have
1: heard recently where women have had them restitched, and it is, I mean, it's horrendous it's like I've had two women where it's happened in that like later end of the six weeks and it's I mean like they've had medication and been sedated for it but it's a lot of pain afterwards as well because that space is so Sore, but yes, normally I'd never heard it before. Then it's left,
0: right? So, you know, midwives like, well, why would we why is it okay to leave a wound that has come apart to heal by itself, but then we can't initially let it heal by itself, right? I mean, it's a very fair thing to be thinking. So, what the research says is actually it's completely reasonable to allow a second degree tear to heal on its own, and in terms of outcomes. They're very, very similar to if the woman had stitches or not. But that study is that, because for those
1: that don't understand, episiotomy is still a second degree tear because episiotomy cuts into the muscle. The issue here is, well, it's not a second degree tear. A second degree tear is something your body has done as an episiotomy is something that is done to you. So your body is cut and it is different in terms of how, it's, how it separates because you've had a blade as opposed to your body and your natural fibers tearing from need. Mm-hmm. So did the study include episiotomies or not it just talks about
0: second degree tearing yeah and we've got to think about episiotomies are not physiological damage like I would consider that the perineal space has the capacity to tear and repair and that's why it's structured in such a way as it is in terms of its vascularity and the lymphatic system and the amount of you know when you look at the tissue's of the perineum, they're very different to other parts of our body. Like it looks like it's made for something special. And I would suggest it's for tearing and repairing and or moving out of the way when the baby's head's coming through.
1: As opposed to a surgical intervention, which is being cut. Um, If we've done something to your body, then we then have to help it heal from that, which would be suturing.
0: And a tear will go through the path of least resistance. Like it usually your body won't tear at the strongest part of your muscle or in through a major blood vessel or anything like that. It'll tear through the weakest points. And so episiotomy is indiscriminate. And I think, yes, I do think episiotomy should be repaired because that's an imposed injury rather than a physiological one.
1: And I haven't looked at the research on this, but I can't imagine there would be research on uh, leaving episiotomy and not leaving an episiotomy because of the risk that litigation would come because it's something that's been done to you so then if you haven't if you as a person who's done the procedure hasn't haven't fixed it or healed it that's for lack of better language around that then there would be a lot of litigation around it
0: it also doesn't really fit the bill of sitting together and not bleeding like episiotomy wounds usually bleed and you can usually see that they don't sit together so like it you know, we consider too whether or not it even fits the criteria for a wound that would not favour being repaired. Well, it's not a wound, it's an incision.
1: Well, yeah, it is. Really. And that's how I kind of explain it. Like I get a piece of paper and I cut it. When you cut the piece of paper, you've got two straight edges. When you tear a piece of paper, you've got the fibres from both sides that kind of then come back together. That's really how I explain tearing and episiotomy. They're two very completely different Injuries. I think. Did I don't know if you explained this at the start of the chat, but you know, suturing people often don't think about it when they think about birth. They think about the baby coming out. Some people have no idea that they then have to birth the placenta. Some people do, and so that typically comes next. And then you, your perineum is observed and then sutured. And so to be sutured, you're laying down with your legs up in stirrup. So for some people, it that can hold a lot of emotion if they don't know to prepare for that and they don't know that that's part of it. So just knowing that that is there. There, um and that it can be a part of your birth space and then the postpartum healing and this is kind of you know the really when we look at what happens in the postnatal period as a culture it doesn't really respect postpartum healing at all we've lost it we've lost all kind of taking care of the mother and our culture in especially in australia is really centered around the bounce back culture and the getting back out there and the coffee shops and the pram and the walking around and so we've turned what should be a really and I know I use I don't like using the word should but it should be a restful state where we've moved from stretch the big stretch of pregnancy and birth to now a contraction and rest state where the body is allowed to rest and heal and for some of us that have physiological birth you know postpartum there is a state of energy that you get and that is there to care for yourself and your baby but often and I am totally guilty of this we misuse that energy to uh, keep other people happy to keep up an appearance to portray a message whatever it is I mean I my second postpartum we just come out of lockdown 864 and we we're going into lockdown 972 and so I was trying to keep everyone happy it's like I wanted my eldest son to be happy so that he didn't have big feelings about the fact he got a sibling and this sibling was you know taking his mum away from him and then I wanted my husband to be happy because he was on holidays from work and it had been a year of doing nothing and so we went traveling like to Melbourne and then Queensland and like the third and fourth week postpartum now I didn't have a tear and I didn't physically feel like I'd given birth but I had I mean suturing or not there is still things that you need to do to care for that space but if you're not being if you're not having sutures there's probably an extra element or two, but really thinking about if you're listening to this and you're pregnant Really thinking about what's your imprint on postpartum and what do you think postpartum healing looks like? Because we just
0: culturally don't have that message that the body needs to heal. And that's what I talked to him and whether or not you've decided to have suturing or not, a really big part of healing your perineum and your vulva postnatally is lying down, you know, not sitting up and feeding your baby, sitting up on couches, walking around, lie down, allow everything to settle in, to heal back together. You know, when women have had their first babies, it's a lot easier to just lie around in bed all day. If women women are having second and subsequent babies, I often ask them about what's your postpartum support like because that's going to change potentially my recommendations for whether or not they should have suturing or not and also their advice on how to care for their Perineum. And so, if they say, Look, no, I won't be or can't be lying around in bed for at least a week, like that would be minimum, I think, in terms of adequate perineal healing, at least a week. If you think that you're going to be up and down out of the bed, chasing after other children, serving the rest of the household, then consider that your perineal repair is going to be slower. And so, what I always tell women is that your body needs a definite amount of time to heal. And if you give it that time over six weeks, it'll take six weeks to heal. If you give it that time all in one big chunk, it'll take all the healing time and do it all in one big chunk. Whereas if you space it out by interrupting your healing time by not resting, then your body's just gonna take longer and longer to heal. And when something takes longer and longer to heal, you open up the more chance of it not healing well or opening yourself up to the possibility of infection. And so my suggestion with healing is that you can't change how fast or how slow Uh, in terms of how much time your body needs to repair. It needs a time. And if you don't give it to it, it will take it sometime later. So if you decide not to rest, you may come down with an infection or poor healing later on because your body's telling you to stop, sit down so we can heal. I just want to offer here to to really think
1: about what your belief system is around rest because for many of us, but most of us were given the imprint from our mothers to to be busy, to do everything for everybody, to do everything in the household and that if you stop, you can only stop if you're sick and really unwell and even then you can't. So really thinking about, well, what is my belief system Around healing and resting, because you know I came from a family of women that are, you know, they're amazing, they're incredible women. But if they're not doing five things at once, then they're just, you know, that's it. That's that was my imprint. That you have to do five things at once, and if you're not, then you're lazy, um, or you're weak, or you're vulnerable, and that carries with us because that is what we have seen is what motherhood should look like and so these kind of stories that we grow up with really play out for us so if you're pregnant now and you're really thinking about that postpartum time ask yourself this what what is my story what is my belief around resting because definitely for me it was that I wasn't I was wasn't good enough I wasn't other people would be better than me that I wasn't a good enough mom if I wasn't up and caring for my family and that you really only well, really, my message growing up was you don't receive help because I never saw my mom receive help. I saw her give it. I saw her give it to everybody, but I never saw her receive help. The truth is people love helping people and you may not give it back to that exact same person, but someone will give it to them and you'll give it to somebody else. We're a community. We're tribal. We love to be connected. And one of the coolest things you can do is connect with someone that's just had a baby and give them food and nourishment and clean their house.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. So take home message here is that, Despite the usual practice of every second-degree tear being sutured, the research supports suturing versus not suturing, which is an evidence-based way of approaching perineal repair, is that if a woman doesn't want to be sutured, midwives don't stress about it because actually there's really good evidence that even if you don't suture a second-degree tear, it will heal as well functionally As if you stitched it and, in fact, less painfully. So, women experience more comfort having not been sutured than those who have been. And we get to avoid that entire interruption of suturing someone's vulva immediately after they've had a baby. I mean, imagine if we could just skip that part. I think any woman has said, Yeah, it was really enjoyable to have my perineum repaired immediately after giving birth. There's a picture of me holding Louis um, after
1: I had him and I was laying on my couch and I've just got my head in my hands and I was just thinking of all the people I've cared for laying on that hospital bed without their babes while they're getting sutured and just, you know, it's is—it's an interruption and sometimes it's a very necessary, very fantastic interruption and you're allowed to, well, not fantastic, but very necessary interruption that will help you in the long run, especially if it's a third or fourth degree tear but it, it is also allowed to have feelings around it, like disappointment of being, you know, separated from your baby. And what else would you offer here in just like a little summary in terms of if you haven't been sutured, what else are we going to offer people that they can do?
0: Yeah. So I think whether or not you've been sutured, all of this would apply anyway. So at least a week lying down in bed, very little sitting up on your sitting bones or on your vulva. Don't be sitting cross legged in bed and things like that really getting horizontal and letting your body heal like you said cross-legged thing can I just say cross-legged thing is awful for
1: our bodies at any time I'm totally guilty of it But something that can help is having a footstool where you're able, if you are going to sit up, have your feet up on a stool and flat, um, especially if you're feeding your baby. So your feet aren't dangling um, and you haven't got that need to kind of support your body a bit more, bring a stool into your life. The book, The First 40 Days is epic. I really recommend reading that. And there is a saying, five days in bed, five days on bed, five days around bed, talking about the first two weeks postpartum that basically you don't leave your bedroom and so that first five days you're laying down so that's in bed on bed is kind of sitting but laying around
0: more yeah and you know legs together as much as you can to facilitate those the edges of that wound to heal then also I really love the perineal bottles that you can get so when you go to the toilet when as you wee you can Squirt your vulva as you wee, which partially helps if you've got grazes and things up near your urethra or around your clitoris. They can be a bit stingy when you wee postpartum and it can make weeing postpartum really um, upsetting. And so, uh, having a peri bottle to spray the area, some women add things like pink salt and herbs and things all to that bottle. Uh, I would just not get fancy with it personally, unless. If the wound is showing signs of infection, yeah, I think it's time to add some therapy like pink salt or calendula tinctures or tea tree or lavender or whatever it is women want to add to that wash. But don't complicate it. Just fill it with water, go and wee and pour it all over yourself. If you haven't got a peri bottle, a glass of water works just as well or one of those pump bottles with the with the lid but a sauce
1: bottle or a drink bottle works well but if you're looking for a peri bottle i'm just going to do a shout out here my shop page has epic peri bottles but yeah the whole reason it stings is the acidity of the urine so the water just washes it away and and just part your labia that's the other thing like gently part it from the mons pubis you can do that as as you kind of wee that can be helpful just to get in a little bit deeper because the urethra kind of sits on
0: Yeah. So part of it is, is comfort, but the other part is keeping that area clean. So there's no buildup of goop or anything, postpartum goop. So that will help with hygiene, changing your pads every three to four hours. If even if there's not too much blood on there, you don't want to collect moisture and things like that. And actually sitting on a towel instead of being in undies all day. So just of like avoiding Things that would might irritate the wound and rub against it. I just but want to say
1: here, people will use body body, and I'm a big fan of body body in many different um, aspects for incontinence and periods. We don't actually know what's in body body; it's proprietary limited, so we don't know the chemicals and stuff that are in there. They're, it's also really difficult, and I don't recommend them in the first couple of weeks postpartum because you can't see your blood flow and you can't period. actually monitor it. Yeah, yeah, period undies, but they make postpartum undies now. So they do market for postpartum and then and there are, other, there are other brands that do it. What I see with bodies is you don't know how much you're losing because they're so good at absorbing. And the other thing is that people will wear them for longer and so they don't, they're less inclined to change them because they might not have as many pairs or because they're so absorbent, they don't think to. And the, the free bleeding is such a great thing for our vaginas to have. People don't, uh, again, it's a cultural thing. We're not used to seeing it. Like I, when I lived in the Solomon Islands, I saw it because that's all women had. They would just wear a sarong and you you never saw blood. They just would wash the sarong always. Tree bleeding is like something I'm really fascinated by because we've done it for 60,000 years, right? That's the whole idea of the red tent, but we're really grossed out by it. Airing vaginas is a nice thing. I'm not talking about going and sticking them in the sun. I'm talking about, yeah, sitting on a towel like Mel's kind of explained, it, laying just laying down on a towel and especially if it's hot.
0: Yeah, so you want to be taking away that moisture from your body. So hygiene, keeping, yeah blood away as much as possible from your body. Also, if there's any inflammation of the vulva, bringing down the inflammation as fast as possible will increase the healing, the speed of healing. So for women who've got a swollen vulva, here's my top tip. And I I don't think I'm the only one, but a packet of condoms in the antenatal period, fill them half up with water, lie them flat, tie them off and freeze them flat. So they become kind of one or two centimeters high and freeze them as ice packs they are hygienic they don't have sharp edges don't insert them into your vagina they're for the outside and they defrost in about 20 to 30 minutes and so they're a really good ice pack cheap to be using in the postpartum period to help bring down swelling or tenderness in the postpartum period so I'd have these frozen ahead of time for your birth. And there's all kinds of fancy little gel packs you can buy. Um, I'm not a fan of the condoms because I just feel like they're messy and
1: annoying. What I did was made my own padsicles. Um, and even if you just want to wet, if you don't want to put any kind of aloe vera or witch hazel or anything like that, you can just wet them and then just freeze them. And then if you put that, and, and they work really, really, really
0: well. And they're I'm easy they to stay cold enough. Like they don't stay cold enough for long enough.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because people often don't like ice. They like heat for healing. Like I any anytime I've kind of done stuff on Instagram about this, people kind of come at me with, oh, but it should be heat. But if it's swelling, it should actually be okay. ice. So I always recommend only if there's swelling, use ice. If there's no swelling, you don't have to use ice. But if there's swelling, use ice. So we typically use ice in the first couple of days. Once the swelling goes down, we can use the heat for pain relief.
0: Yeah. And also people talk about, and this is something the research spoke about, was the sensation of discomfort is different for people who have stitches versus not having stitches. They're both it's a level of discomfort. You know, like when you get a graze, and not that we get them very often, but when you're younger and you get grazes and in the day three or four when it's starting to heal, they kind of get itchy and a bit stingy and a bit perineums are the same. Around day three or four, they start to feel a little bit. So, sort of women describe it as tight or itchy or just a bit different to before. That's just a sign of healing. So, the ice can be really nice at that point to t- just to ease that sensation. So, however you choose to apply it, if there's swelling or some itching or just tenderness with that wound healing, um, you can wrap some paper towel around the condom. I wouldn't put it straight on your on your perineum and then. Yeah, but certainly if you haven't got the gel packs or, you know, padsicles are overwhelming or whatever, packet of condoms frozen. So some kind of ice and cool for inflammation. Uh, And I really advocate the use of homeopathic arnica for uh, swelling for your vulva or if there's any level of bruising. Sometimes your vulva gets bruised. That's okay. Really normal kind of postpartum thing to be experiencing but homeopathic Arnica can bring down the the swelling and the bruising. And if you're coming from hospital and you have perineal pain or swelling, they will often recommend a combination of Panadol and Voltaren to help bring down swelling. So that's another option. If you don't want pharmacological assistance, the Arnica and ice, really nice. Oh, look at that. Arnica and ice are really nice. But if you're happy to go with some medication, then Panadol Voltaren seems to be the the routine recommendation from clinicians who are working in a hospital. I mean, I think that's a pretty good wrap-up on suturing versus not suturing. Basically, for midwives to not panic, if a woman either can't be, some women just will not tolerate suturing for whatever reason, if there's trauma or the discomfort is too much, Don't worry about it. From the research, and there's more than one paper. Again, I'll put them in the folders for the mailing list. It will heal. And so don't worry about it. And same thing for women. If you're feeling cool about that tear not being sutured, the outcome will be the same. Regardless, it comes down to everything,
1: right? It's about effective communication between the care provider and the person receiving the care. What do you want? What are your hopes and expectations? What did you think this was going to look like? You know, all that kind of stuff. But that's going to be tricky as a midwife. I know it's easy for us to say, don't worry. You've really got to see it first to believe it, right? And so, especially in a, it's, I think it's really hard to not worry about it in a fragmented system because you don't get that follow up with people. So you send them out and then you're like, well, did it heal? Did it not heal? Like, I remember when we were learning suturing back when I was like a new grad and my my roomie um, had sutured people and then I would go out and do the domiciliary and she'd be like, what did it look like? You know, and I think too, we really moved away. And I know as a midwife, I really moved away from like when we studied, we would check the perineum a lot. And then we kind of moved away from not doing it. And it felt like it was, we either all did it or we didn't. And I think I just want to offer that, like bringing back into your practice, if that person wants it to be looked at, um, if they want to look at it, with you. Most people haven't looked at it So really kind of normalizing the, hey, you can look at this space if you want to, you don't have to, you can look at it and get to know it and be and and take care of it, really, Mm. because a lot of the time we just disassociate and disconnect and we don't want to look at it, we don't want to touch it, we just hope that it heals on its own, but it really needs our connection to heal. And so, you know, bringing down those barriers of not wanting to look or touch, actually, hey, it's really, this is a part of you that has had an injury and it needs to heal and it needs you to connect with it and take care of it, Mm. just like your baby you need to take care of your vulva just like you need to take care of your baby Um, and so bringing that back in and I think midwives have a big role to play in that in terms of you know t- talking to people in the postpartum when they're working on a postnatal ward probably would be the best or in domiciliary so those home visits to be like hey have you looked at your vulva would you like to do that with me now you don't have to i know we've you know only really just met and i think this is a big part of it in fragmented care you don't want a stranger who's just coming yeah. to look at your vulva right and so i think it's whilst it is easy for us to say don't worry about it, it's actually really hard so you know i'd go and see these women on domiciliary and i'd come home and my housemate would be like who did you see today that's how i sutured how's it looking she had so much fear around you know how the wound was healing but she didn't get that follow-up and so thinking you know you and I have worked a lot of continuity so we know we're going to see that person we know we're going to be able to give her good care or give them good care and information around healing but when the when it's fragmented you're kind of feeding them to the wolves and so this is a part of it maybe those people who do have fragmented care will want suturing because they haven't got that constant follow-up and that person to give that advice the other thing that people might come in contact with is maybe the midwife in the birth doesn't suture but then the midwife that follows up goes well why didn't you get sutured you had a second degree tear and that conflict of experience and and information which is really challenging for first-time parents and subsequent but really first time so I kind of just wanted to add that extra layer on because it isn't easy for those of us to change for those for, for people to change practice but can we just keep bringing it back to conversation can we start you know, maybe it is that you link in with your colleagues who went out to do the home visit and say, hey, did you look at it? I mean, we're time pouring these big systems too, but just kind of offering some support out there to our colleagues. that We know it's hard to start implementing a lot of what we're talking about, but we have to have these conversations to make the change.
0: I think you're right. And I think that's probably why I'm so confident with it is yeah, it's in your whole thing. practice. It's your bread yeah. and butter
1: and most midwives in the system aren't suturing and this is the other thing that you need to know if you're if you're pregnant i think a lot of people get felt let down especially if they have case low midwifery not all case low midwives will suture um not all midwives will suture and they'll you know i've heard women say well, I, or people will say i had the same care provider the whole way through and then just some right ra- random stranger came in and i had to wait for them and then they were really rude and they were taking phone calls and they didn't even respect my body or the birth space they just came in and sutured and left again and that is often the case it'll be some registrar or junior doctor that just comes in sutures you and leaves and so even if you've had continuity that continuity can be broken and so I just want to highlight that as well there's probably you know yeah for you Mel that's I mean that's your foundations of your care but for most midwives, they're not out there suturing. A lot of them want to be, but can't. Like I remember when I moved from one hospital to another, I, my suturing, I stopped doing it because the doctors were, you know, they that was GP obstetricians. So that was kind of run like a private uh, medical system, but, but it wasn't, it was public. But the people who were in the care trusted and knew the doctors. And so the doctors did the suturing and the midwives didn't. And I de-skilled in those years yeah. because I didn't get to suture anymore. Most hospital-based midwives will not be suturing.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, and, yeah, it's just made me think because when I trained my current colleague, who I, my work wife, I affectionately call her my work wife, when she started coming out to home births with me and I said, oh, no, that one, I don't think that one's going to need suturing, she's like, what do you mean? And, yeah. I, and she said well, it wasn't until, and even now as we reflect on it, she said it wasn't until I went into private practice that I even considered that second degree tears wouldn't need to be sutured. So, if you're hearing this for the first time, know that actually the evidence is, supports the option of suturing or not suturing in terms of outcome. There's no difference. So, and you're also not alone. Many other midwives
1: will be hearing this for the first yes. time too. And then it's a system you've got to come up against because if you say, Oh, no, I can remember that like so many times coming out to the desk and then being, What was the tear? A second degree. Well, has it been sutured yet? No. What do you mean it hasn't been sutured? It didn't need to be sutured. What do you I mean it didn't need to be sutured. Like I've had those conversations with the head of units before, being like, "Well, I've had a discussion with the person who's had the tear, and you know, collective, we've decided that it doesn't need to be sutured." But I've had to. I've had to- slide it a lot of times a lot of memories are coming back now because it's yeah it is it's probably ingrained all second degrees get sutured so if you're wanting to decline it it may be a big conversation that you have and this may be a conversation you have during your care you know with your private obstetrician or your midwife or in a fragmented model hey what is your belief around suturing
0: and what will you offer me and if I say no how are you going to feel about that yeah. And and can I just put it out there I think there's more evidence for not suturing perineums than there is for the use of CTG in labor. So if you're
1: comfortable
0: If you're comfortable and feel confident that CTGs are a good idea but you want everyone to have suturing, then that's not evidence-based. So look at the evidence and if you're coming up to the challenge of trying to convince your work colleagues or workplace to be comfortable with women not having sutures, have a look in the folders that you will get. If you're on the mailing list, you can get access to all the research and say, actually, did you know that the outcomes are the same regardless? of the change you want
1: to see in the world. Be rebellious. We need rebellions to change this.
0: Right, we're done. There you go. That is episode 21 of The Great Birth Rebellion. We will see you next time. Woo! Thank you for listening to The Great Birth Rebellion this year, 2022. b and I are taking a short break and we'll be with you again around mid to late January 2023. Merry Christmas from us and have a blessed holiday season. We'll see you next year on The Great Birth Rebellion. Thanks for listening
1: with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, the at coramfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah. Yeah <laughs>